0: Let's open to Isaiah's prophecy, the fifth chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 5. So what does an orchard owner do with a tree that is sickly and diseased and bears no fruit? He, he cuts it down, right? He bundles up the branches and he makes a bonfire. And in this prophecy, the Lord is using that kind of imagery to speak about the nation of Israel. These people, He said, I brought, like a little sapling, I brought them, like a seed, I brought them out of Egypt, and I brought them to a garden, a land that I had, I would prepare for them. I, I, I removed the rocks from the soil, I got rid of the, Canaanite nations and I put myself around that nation like a protective wall and I planted them there in that place and I looked for them to bring forth a good fruit to my glory and honor and what did I find but that they brought forth only bad fruit. They were an unfruitful vineyard, not doing the things, not performing the righteous deeds that flow out of faith, out of trust in God and His promises. No, they bore rotten fruit, sour grapes. And this text describes the rotten fruit that came from Israel's branches. And it describes it in the form of six Woes Let's take a look at the text, verse eight, Woe to those who join from house, join house to house, and then verse eleven, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink and so forth, and then verse eighteen, woe to those who draw iniquity, and so forth, and verse twenty, woe. Verse 21, woe. And verse 22, woe. These are all expressions of great distress and foreboding of God's anger and His sorrow. These passages, these, this text, describes six actions and attitudes of the people of Israel that caused Isaiah and caused the Lord great distress and brought about the foreboding warnings of His impending judgment upon them. These six things the Lord hates. And then you get to verse 24, and in all of your Bibles, um, it probably begins with the word therefore. And Nasby has, I think, on this account. There's a a connection between what follows in verse 24 and what has come before in these six woes. Verses 24 and 25 and following are God's response to those who fail to bear the good fruit of righteousness in their lives. So I want to preach to you this morning on these six woes and a therefore. I think you'll see that there are great parallels to um, our world today, to people today, and uh, that that this may be uh, a warning and uh, a demonstration of the patience of God to all of us. In the first place, Isaiah says, by the Lord, he pronounces a woe upon those who are consumed by covetousness. And a love of wealth. Woe upon those who are consumed by covetousness. Take a look again at, a, at the beginning of our text in verse number 10, Isaiah 5, I'm sorry, 8, right? Isaiah 5 verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. In the first place, God pronounced a woe upon the people because they were joining house upon house and field upon field. And the problem, of course, is not that they're buying up land or even having a second house. The problem is that they are never content. They're not content with what God gives. They're not trusting in the God who provided them their inheritance. They feel that they must take the inheritance of others. It's never enough for them. This is the sin of covetousness. And of course, covetousness can sometimes be very subtle. It can just, we can commit this sin simply in our minds and in our hearts. Not satisfied with what God has provided, always longing to have what someone else has, never content to rest upon the goodness of the Lord. And this is sometimes a very subtle thing as to when we've crossed the line. Do you know what I mean? When we have gone from desire that is submitted to God, but it's our earnest desire to where now that desire has become the ruling desires of our heart. The Lord is no longer on the throne. That desire has displaced the Lord in our hearts. And that is frankly what we have to, we have to guard our minds and hearts against. And these people had given themselves over to covetousness the wealthy, the powerful of that day had oppressed the poor in order to gain more and more for themselves. I want to encourage us to be sensitive about the sin of covetousness, to guard our hearts. The Scripture says that covetousness is a form of idolatry. And while covetousness can, of course, at times be subtle just in our hearts, in our minds, it often manifests itself when people become so obsessed with having that thing, that situation, that whatever it is, they become so obsessed with it that they're willing to go outside of the will of God. They're willing to sin against God and His Word in order to try to obtain that for himself. This is what James says in James chapter 4 when he says, you desire and you cannot obtain, so you war and you fight in order to get it. These people were committing sins against God and against others in order to obtain this wealth for themselves. Micah chapter 2 says it this way. Micah condemned the people along the same lines from the Lord. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They have might, and that makes right for them. They will get what they want. They covet fields, and so they seize them, houses, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. It's easy to uh, think back on the example of Ahab, king of Israel, who saw a property next to his, then desired it, Naboth's vineyard. And he... Became so consumed with that property and his wicked wife Jezebel that they trumped up false accusations against this honorable man and brought uh, a lawsuit against him and uh, government sponsored uh, injustice and they took away what, what was his and ultimately sentenced him to death and confiscated his property. And I mean, sadly, that happens all the time around the world today. Uh, you, you, if you travel enough, you will run into story after story of places where this has happened. Read the news, you see things like this happening all over. The Lord predicted also that their big, beautiful houses would be desolate. That those uh, properties that they'd acquired for themselves, those houses that they'd expanded, one day they will, they will sit empty when the judgment of God falls. And our Lord Jesus reiterated this in his own day, when he faced a still uh, unrepentant, unbelieving people, and he, he after after leaving the temple, their temple for the last time, he said, Your house will be left to you desolate. And that is exactly what happens. He spoke of a coming abomination of desolation. These people, even in Isaiah's day, were uh, filled with uh, covetousness, building up their houses and their lands. And he said, your house will be, your houses will be desolate. And he said, your fields will become infertile when the Lord brings his judgment upon you. Just like Israel had been spiritually unfruitful, the land itself would become unfruitful it would mirror their own depravity he says 12 uh, or 10 acres would yield only a bath or about 6 gallons of grapes or you put the uh the seed into the ground and he says a, a homer full of seed will yield only about an epha which is like a tenth of of a homer so we're talking a hundredfold loss on their initial investment, right? The Lord is ensuring them that his judgment will come upon them because they are filled with covetousness, and this is the way covetousness works. When 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 people reach out and grasp to get what they think they must have and they have it in their hands, they find that the Lord has a way of making it vanish in their sight. Haggai said to the people of his day who were just as consumed with getting land and property and wealth that they would get possessions only to put it into a bag with holes in it. The Lord would bring His judgment upon these people for their covetousness. And I want to remind you that the Lord's temporal judgments on the ancient nation of Judah should remind us that he controls, he has controlled and does control and always will, control all of the, the natural realm. The the fertility of the earth, the, the rains that fall from the heavens. He controls droughts. He controls famines. He controls pandemics. And he uses them all as tools to accomplish His will. In fact, the whole physical world, we're told in Scripture, lies under the curse of sin. And every amazing thing that we uh, we make from the materials of the world only comes about with great pain and hardship because of the world in which we live. Uh, the, the world has yet to see what, what productivity could come from a world that is freed from the curse. The Lord commanded these people, He pronounced upon these people a curse for their covetousness, their love of money. Secondly, He pronounces a woe upon their arrogant reveling. In verses 11 and 12, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Before... God's judgment fell on Judah. They were living in a time of plenty, at least for some. And there was partying. I mean, the wine flowed freely. The band was playing. There was plenty of food, right? People who don't want to consider the the weighty realities of God and our place in the world, and life, and death, and sin, and judgment. People who don't want to consider those things often do fill up their lives with with frivolity, with partying, with drunkenness, with sex, with anything that will just sort of distract and and get them away from really considering the deeper realities. Some of you guys know people like that, I'm sure. Who just go from one distraction to the next in order to keep from having to think about eternal things. Those ancient Jerusalemites, they refused to consider, they refused to consider creation's testimony to the Creator, like so many do today. As the text said, they, they did not consider the works of his hands. They refused to acknowledge His providence. As the text says, they did not know the deeds of the Lord. And I'm sure that like some people today, they wrote off the things that were happening around them and the things that they saw in creation as just so much chance, right? Just so much coincidence. I mean, there's no connection between this that happened and then this this apparent what Israel considered what God what the Lord considered a judgment this is just chance after all in fact they said hey we've been doing what we want and so far it seems like God doesn't care i mean things aren't so bad for us look how prosperous we are and that is always the way it is of course before the day of the lord comes before the lord has his day men and nations they they have their day their moment in the sun, if you will. But when the day of the Lord comes, friends, all those accounts are settled. And the day of the Lord comes at various times upon each people and nation. And we will see that as we continue to go through this book. From chapters 13 through chapters 24, the day of the Lord is visited upon one nation after another, one people after another. In in their own time and their own way, God has determined for every nation on the face of the earth its boundaries, its times, and when His cup of judgment becomes full, when their cup of iniquity of that people is filled to the brim, the day of the Lord dawns, and He makes all things right. And it is a day of great fear and judgment for that people. Just as surely as it came upon each of those ancient nations, the Lord is dealing with peoples and nations and individuals today. In that day, Isaiah said, the nation is going to reap what it sowed, Verse 13, you see the word therefore there kind of anticipates the extended therefore of verses 24 and following. Verse 13, he says, Therefore my people will go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men will go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Which is... An absolutely appropriate judgment, right? Upon people who were feasting, they will be left in hunger. Upon people who were drunk, they will be left in thirst, the Lord said. And verse 14 says that they will be hungry, but hell will be full. Verse 14, Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down her revellers, and he who exults in her man is humbled, each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy uh, excuse me, and the And the holy God shows Himself holy in righteousness. Verse 17, Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. The Lord would bring a great judgment on His people, pictured by Sheol, opening its mouth to swallow the people whole, as it were. Now, Sheol is a general Hebrew term for death, for the realm of the dead, if you will. But behind that sort of general idea of death swallowing up these people, there's actually a biblical eschatology that begins in the very beginning. You remember in the Garden of Eden, um, kind of rewind here a little bit, God put man and, 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 and woman into the garden and he put in the midst of that garden a tree of life, right? A tree of life upon their personal, perfect, exact, and entire obedience to God. They could have eaten of this tree and they would have been ushered into eschatological life. This life in the glorified state with God a life that was characterized would would have been characterized by unbroken communion with God, by the consummate experience of his presence, by a confirmation in utter holiness, and by an eternal and unparalleled joy that comes from him but Remember back in the garden, God also, you have the tree of life, but you also have the first mention of death, right? In the day you eat of the tree that I forbid, the forbidden fruit, you will surely die. And of course, in that day, they ate that fruit. They didn't die physically, but they did die in a deeper way. They lost communion with God. They were expelled from His presence. They were confirmed, not in holiness, but in sinful depravity. And they were cursed to a life of pain and hardship and ultimately death and separation from God. But in the midst of all of that fallenness and judgment, God promised this great hope for their future. It's an amazing thing that, at the darkest place of that those early chapters where sin abounded, grace did much more about, and God said that he would provide for that woman a, a seed, a descendant who would crush the head of the serpent, who would even while sustaining uh, uh, uh harm from that serpent would 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 defeat the powers of death that had just come upon them. And so very early on then, God's people understood Sheol or the grave or the realm of the dead to be made up of two distinctly different kinds of realities. On the one hand, it was merely a kind of waiting place for the resurrection of the body that would come on account of the one who would defeat death, and this is the uh, the experience of people in that state was all joy in the hope that the promise of resurrection gave. Uh, so, so even Abraham. Uh, early on in the scripture was encouraged by the promise that Isaac would be raised up from Sheol uh, Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter two, verse seven says this: "The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up That was her hope. Job said as well in job nineteen verse twenty five I know that my redeemer lives." and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. This was the hope of all who went down to Sheol as believers waiting for the promises of God. They had this experience of hope and joy even in the midst of death. But this was also, Shaol was also the beginnings of God's judgment that would culminate in a final judgment at the end of human history. In this experience of the intermediate state between physical death and final judgment, Jesus said that. While righteous Lazarus experienced joy with Abraham and the saints, yet the rich man who rejected God was, quote, in torment and in anguish. And that is the state, friends. According to the word of God, that is the state of all who persist in sin. There is a coming day, says Isaiah, when Sheol, will reach up and swallow down to the pit these who were now high, lifted up. They will go from the heights to the depths. They will go from plenty to hunger, from drunkenness to thirst when the Lord brings His judgment. But just like in our day, The sinners of Isaiah's day made light of such warnings. And we see in verse 18, a woe upon those who mock and belittle God's warnings of judgment. Verse 18, take a look at our text again. The Lord says, Woe. To those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Who draw sin as with cart ropes. In other words, they're using any means possible to draw to themselves all the sin that they can carry. Woe to those, verse 19, who say, Let him be quick. They're saying about the Lord, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. You hear the, what's got to be a, a tone of mocking in their words, like the atheist who says, if there really is a God, let him bring down his fiery judgment upon him. Ah, See, nothing's happened. This is the way they were behaving toward the judgment of God in their day. Isaiah seemed to them as one who mocked. Peter in the last days Peter said, excuse me, in the last days that there would there will be there would be scoffers, mockers who would say essentially that, where is the promise of his coming? Where is this day of the Lord you talk about? For since the fathers fell asleep all things continue as they have been. And they are willingly ignorant of the judgments of God. The day of the Lord comes slowly sometimes. It does. The day of the Lord seems delayed. It seems like it. it, it that God doesn't care. The truth, the reality is that God's patience waits for men to repent. But when the judgment comes, it will be as swift and unexpected as a thief coming in the middle of the night. And one moment you are dead asleep, and the next moment the sound of crashing around you and the thief is upon you. And that's the way the Lord pictures it. And there are plenty of people who are asleep to that reality. This is why the passage we read says, hey, brothers, we are not asleep. We're awake. We're looking for the day of the Lord. These people were mocking. They were considering that this day would not come because it hadn't come. I want to ask you, have you ever thought about the fact that God's patience in holding off His judgment, God's patience might be waiting for you? I mean, truly, listen to me. God's patience might be waiting for you, my friend. For you here this morning. It was His intent that by this sermon that you would give your heart to God, that you would come to Christ, that you would turn from your sin. That He has withheld His judgment and extended His grace yet for you. In the fourth place, there were those who who hardened themselves in sin. And Isaiah pronounces a woe upon those who reverse God's moral judgments. They totally turn them upside down. Look at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet, Or bitter. Woe upon those who reverse the judgments of the sovereign Lord, who try to undo what He has done, who try to unmake what He has made, to try to unsay what He has said. How foolish and futile. But it is just as true today that people call good evil and evil good. Lifestyles that God calls sin are considered by many to be something proud about. Something to be proudly celebrated. An act that God sees as murder they call a woman's courageous choice. And speaking the truth that would actually set people free they call hateful speech. And trying to help a person be free from self-destructive behaviors they call abusive conversion therapy that's now banned, outlawed, by law as of two months ago in the country of Canada. It is, uh, it is no less uh, true today that many people in God's world are trying to live as if they can make their own world. And it will not work. It will not last. People have literally tried to put themselves in the place of God. And that really comes to the the next woe, which is in verse 21. Woe upon such pride and self-worship. Woe upon pride and self-worship. He says in verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And this, I think, is really the root of of all of our sinfulness in in a lot of ways. God said in the very beginning, Do not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. And so how how did the woman react to that? Remember that she saw the tree and by the serpent was tempted to consider that tree and to reckon that it was in fact not off-limits, not something to be avoided, but something good, right? She said, no, this is good. This is good for food. This is good to look at. This is good to make me wise so that I am my own decider of what's right and wrong, what's out of bounds and what's not. The woman and the man, knowingly, sinned against God, listening to the serpent who tempted them, you will be like gods, knowing and deciding good and evil for yourselves. Behind the act of calling good evil and evil good is always a spirit of self-worship. It's always a spirit that says, I am, we would never say it, no one would ever say it out loud, this way, but this is the reality. I am God for myself. I decide what's good and evil. I decide what's best for me and what's not best for me. I will run my own life, thank you very much. I will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right and wrong in this way becomes a matter of personal, subjective determination rather than any kind of objective... Judgment of, of God, uh, it becomes, uh, in the end, an elimination of all objective morality such that right and wrong becomes, you know, whatever you think it is. This is your truth. This is my truth. And this attempt at ultra individualism like this is, is really self-defeating and unsustainable. And it ends up in nothing more than mob rule and the tyranny of the majority. We have to be wary lest this spirit characterize even those people who claim to be Christians. I have tried on several occasions to make a biblical argument with a professing Christian only to have basically this professing christian say to me listen i don't really want to argue about the bible i just don't believe that god would want that or i don't believe that god would condemn that you get what you see what's happening behind they're calling right wrong and wrong right it's the spirit that says i will be a god for myself i will decide i don't want to know what god says i just don't believe that that's what the way god would be Well, listen, you can believe all you want that God is what he, uh, God is a certain way or uh, is a different way, but that's not going to change who he actually is, right? It's not going to change reality. All of your fantasy will only be seen ultimately for what it is. Beware lest you too, my brothers and sisters even, slip into that kind of pride and self-worship. May we always be yielded to God as God. Acknowledge that He has the right, and only He has the right, to tell us how to think, and how to live, how to feel. And you know, those who have tasted, have seen that the Lord is good in all of His ways. He's righteous in all of His deeds. Woe to a people who are wise in their own eyes. And finally, verse number 22, woe to those who pervert justice. Woe to those who pervert justice. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes. Heroes at what? Not heroes in battle, heroes in standing for the Lord. Heroes at drinking wine. That's what we're good at. Woe to those who are valiant men in mixing strong drink. Woe to those who, verse 23, acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. And Of course, like in ancient Israel, so in many places in the world today, leaders are given to their own self-indulgence, lining their own pockets rather than seeing that justice is done in their sphere of influence. Missionaries around the world report that bribery is pretty commonplace in a lot of the world. Justice is something you can hire, as it was in ancient Israel. Such was the sad state of that nation Rotten fruit in the Lord's vineyard. Covetousness and reveling and pride and immorality and unbelief and injustice rampant in the land. And this would bring upon them, this would bring upon them the due retribution for their acts. Verse 24. That's why it begins with the word therefore. And you see it again in verse 25. Verse 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will go up like dust. They will be burned up. That nation will be gathered and burned up. And verse number 24, the middle of the verse, and they for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the holy one of israel therefore the anger of the lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the middle of the in the midst of the streets for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still Verse 26 explains how he would bring about these judgments upon his people, and he will raise a signal for the nations far away, nations like Assyria and Babylon. He will raise a sign, and he will whistle for them from the ends of the earth. It's almost like they're his dogs or his, his wild pigs to come and do his bidding, to just come and be called in with a whistle, right? And trample through his vineyard. Which reminds us that not only is God, not only does God use the forces of the natural world to bring his day upon rebellious people, but he uses the actions of nations and people around the world to bring upon people his judgment. And he says. He will whistle for them, verse 26, from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, speaking of God's enemies, or the Israel's enemies. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind, the roaring... Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar, they growl, and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. The light is darkened by its clouds. There will be no hope for them in that day, from land or from sea, from east, from west, wherever you look, there will be only the judgment of God coming down upon that ancient people. This is this is exactly as you continue to read the history of this people. This is exactly what happens, friends. We're not talking about just something hypothetical, or or you know maybe it sort of came in in a metaphorical way. These these things, the judgment of God from Israel's neighbors, exactly happened in history. All as a reminder and as a picture of this reality that God always has his day. That sin and, and, and rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed doesn't stand forever. And God's people ought to say amen, and also ought to quake, lest we be found to be unbelievers as well. May the Lord preserve us. This message this morning, by the therefores in verses 24 and following, this message communicates the justice of God in His impending judgment. The woes have justly brought about the therefores, right? You see how that fits together? Woe, 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 this is all of your evil and therefore this is what will happen. God's punishment when it falls will be completely justified. And so it will be for every, every people, every nation, every individual. One day, someday... The therefore of God's judgment will fall. So what does the Scripture say, friends? Be wise. Be warned. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. He says, Blessed are those who take refuge in Him, but woe to those who persist in sinning against Him. I can't help but believe that this passage is also intended by God, even for the people in Isaiah's day, to be a warning. To be a warning to hopefully avert the impending judgment that Isaiah was predicting. Like Nineveh of Noah's day, God commanded that all of this judgment would fall, but He relented, as it were, when they relented, when they repented of their evil ways. Isaiah's message, of course, was delivered long before the fullness of these events would fall upon Judah and Jerusalem. And I'm sure that for many of the people in that city, they said, hey, everything is just fine. Things are going along well. What's Isaiah talking about, this crazy prophet? That's the response, of course, of many people living in rebellion against God today. Romans chapter 2, Paul says that this is the forbearance of God. It's the mercy of God. And it is possible to presume upon God's kindness and patience, viewing it as merely God's indulgence of our sinfulness, because nothing bad's happened. Or maybe even of God's apathy towards the way that things are. Not recognizing that the patience of God is meant to lead us to repentance. That's the way these passages, I think, were meant to function. So that we would see sin. That we would say, I can't believe God has been so patient to me. That would melt my heart and I would repent and run to Him and, and look to Him as, as a Father, as a gracious Lord. But so many look around and they see that judgment hasn't fallen upon them individually or upon them as a people. They look around and see that we're prospering. We're doing well. The markets are up. Things are doing fine. They look around and see that nothing bad's happening and they just continue on in their sin. And Paul says that they don't realize that they're actually storing up the wrath of God. It's like, like it's being held in these great vessels. And the, the wrath of God is, is being filled up as their iniquities are filling up that cup. So the wrath of God is slowly filling until that day when it is completely full and begins to spill over and God tips that bowl of His judgment and He pours it out upon a people, upon an individual, upon a nation. He pours it out upon the earth. That day, while it may seem long in coming, the Bible says over and over and over again, the day of the Lord will come. It will come. You can be certain about it. The day will come when it will be unleashed and it will be the day of wrath when the righteousness of God's judgment will be revealed. It will be seen to be a righteous judgment. And in that day, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And no one knows, no one knows when that day is coming upon them as an individual or upon them as a people or upon the world as a whole. It will come like a thief in the night. But the Scripture also gives us hope and it says that we may be awake, that we may be redeemed. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not impute or count His sin. The Lord can do that in justice. He can do that because He took that wrath upon Himself. He, he absorbed it Himself in the person of His Son, in the Christ who, who went to the cross to drink the full cup of the wrath of God, who, who, who did not shrink back from receiving in His own body all of the judgment of God on the sins of His people. And when God's judgment finally falls on this earth one day, the Lord... Knows how to rescue the righteous from those trials. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. They are blessed indeed. Then in that day, we will see, friends, what our sin really deserved. We will see and fully know the graciousness of our Lord. Let us pray together going to take a moment for reflection on this text, on this Word from God. Receive it, receive it, friend, as the Word of the Lord. Take a moment now and repent of your sinfulness, run to Christ, take refuge in Him.